off last week, um, um, moving through chapter 14, looking at verses 8 through 20 this evening. So Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer, um, and then we'll, we'll get into our sermon here. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness. We're, we're so thankful, God, for the love that we just sang about in all those songs. That, that just immeasurable, unrelenting love, God, that you pursue us with each and every day. Lord, even when we stray, you pull us back to yourself. Even when we mess up, you don't reject us. You still are there waiting for us to return, Lord. And I'm just truly, God, I'm overwhelmed by just your, your blessing, your love, the gospel that we talk about each week, just the love of Christ that was, was shown, Lord, as he went to the cross and died for us, that we could become yours. It just truly is an amazing thing to think that you would do all that for us. God, tonight I just pray as we go through these verses that, that you would just help us to, to see you for the God that you are, that you would teach us tonight, that you would teach us your word, help us to grasp it, to understand it, to take something from it. Lord, be glorified through what is done tonight and let us leave this place looking more like Jesus than when we walked in. We love you, we thank you, we ask these things in Christ's precious name, amen. All right, well, over the last couple of weeks, we have been going through what's kind of commonly known, as I said, as Paul's first missionary journey. We've been kind of cruising through the book of Acts, and, and now really um, we're on Paul's story, really for the rest of the book of Acts. Um, you know, and we kind of saw with Tim and Barnabas, Tim and Barnabas are going kind of from town to town, and well, what they would do is they would find the local Jewish synagogue, because that would seem to be their kind of inn to have a place to share the gospel. And so when Saturday came, they would go there, they would um, listen to the text that was, that was spoken, and then they would stand and begin to proclaim Jesus and tell the, tell the people there how the Old Testament, the law and the prophets all point to Jesus. And as we saw for the last couple of weeks, some people accept it, some don't. Um, but the other part of that was, was unfortunately the ones that didn't, didn't just like they weren't like, I don't want this and walk away. No, they um, became combative. They, they came against Paul and Barnabas. And in, in one case we saw last week, they even tried to have Paul and Barnabas stoned to death. Yet God spared Paul's life. And um, what we see is that uh, they didn't get scared. They didn't quit. They just kept on moving kept on sharing the gospel, kept on telling people about Jesus um, to, to the next city we're going to be talking about today, which is the city of Lystra. And we're going to be picking up in verse 8, where we left off last week. So chapter 14 and verse 8, reading through verse 10, first off, says this. While they were at Lystra, Paul and Barnabas came upon a man who had crippled feet. He had been that way from birth, so he had never walked. He was sitting and listening as Paul preached, looking straight at him. Paul realized he had faith to be healed. And so Paul called to him in a loud voice, Stand up. And the man jumped to his feet and started walking. It really is amazing when you think about Paul and Barnabas, two men that I tell you, if, if I can aspire to even become just a fraction of what they were as, as, as men of God, I'd be, I'd be happy, I think, you know. I mean, you, driven out of one town after another, Paul stoned, left for dead, yet they pick up, and the first thing we see is they keep on preaching the gospel. They just don't quit. I mean, they're just relentless. I mean, their, their passion for the Lord and, 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 and the ministry that they were given is just so clear. And so they go to this next town and keep on preaching. And one thing is interesting that 
and it's going to kind of come into play a little bit later here, but this town must not have had a Jewish group of people. It must not have had a local synagogue because it says nothing about that. They were just preaching, it seems, in public. And, and as they were, um, there was this man that had been paralyzed, crippled since birth, his entire life. Certainly a man that was well known in the community because most of those men like that at that time were beggars. That They were completely dependent upon the, the benevolence of people around them for them to, to make a living. And yet, as Paul was preaching, there was, there was something about that man's eyes as Paul looked at him. He, he looked, and, and, and literally it says there that Paul realized he had the faith to be healed. And, you know, there's, there's something about that statement that really struck me as I was reading that this week. Now, certainly this is not the first time we've seen miracles in, in the book of Acts or the Gospels. I mean, they're, they're pretty common as we read Scripture. But there's just something about the way that Luke, the writer of Acts, wrote this particular piece that, that kind of struck me as just a little bit different. And I can't help but wonder if it was intentional in, in the way that he wrote that. And so what we have here, we, we have kind of a few components to this, to this miracle, it would seem anyways. One being the man who was there that was crippled. Um, something, whatever it was that Paul was preaching, I mean, we don't have the details of Paul's message. Was he preaching about um, the miracles that Jesus did or the miracles the apostles did or the things that he had done? I mean, I don't really know, to be honest with you. It doesn't say. But whatever it was, something struck that man's heart. And whatever it was, Paul was entuned enough with the Spirit of God, that he looked at that man and knew that he was ready for a miracle in his life. And so with incredible boldness, Paul says, stand up. And like, that's exactly what happened. And anyways, from a kind of a combined view of this miracle, we, we see that both Paul and this man saw that God not only had the power, but the willingness to intercede in this man's life and do just an incredible kindness to him. And as I was thinking about this miracle and, and, and the way that it was described here, I just want to talk about that for a little bit and just maybe even from our own perspective today, it is, maybe this relates to us in, in more ways than we realize. And the, the way I want to start this is just by asking a few questions. When you think about your own life, when you think about your own heart, do you believe that, that God still has the power to do stuff like that still to this day? Or do we think that's just something um, that was in the past? Uh, another component of this is if we were in Paul's shoes today, are we in tuned enough with God's voice to be able to hear the Spirit say, that person is ready for a move of God? thought that was kind of an, an interesting take that we, that we see in that passage here. Like, are we acquainted with God's voice? Are we sensitive to, to moments like this? And maybe even the question, do we believe that God would actually use us, that he could use us in this type of capacity? And then kind of on the other side of it, if you put yourself in this man's shoes, this crippled man who had been lame, um, you yourself, if you were in sh his shoes today, if you needed some big move of God in your life today, do you really believe God would? I mean, it's, you know, some, there's something about it that it's easy to believe it and like that he would do that to other people. It's a whole different thing to, to have the faith and to believe that God would actually do it for us as individuals. Now, before we get into this whole thing, I, I'm going to caveat this with, with this. 
We should always begin a topic like this and, 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 and balance it with the sovereignty of God. Now, I certainly believe that, that God has the power to do anything that he chooses to do. Would you all agree with that, that God has the power to do anything he wants? I, I, I don't believe that God's power is diminished over the centuries. I believe he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, as Scripture says. And yet, there's, there's also this other aspect of this that I really believe that our faith, or the lack thereof, plays a big part in situations like this as well. Now, there are times clearly in God's sovereignty that he, that he chooses to lead people in situations, that he chooses not to move in particular things that we pray for, whether it be healings or this or that or whatever it may be, and, and God's got his own reasons for that, and we need to trust him, and we see that in Scripture as well. And this is where God's sovereignty comes into play. I mean, take the Apostle Paul, for instance. Paul, the, the guy that told this man to stand up. Now, one would think that well, boy, he had, just, he had the power of miracles. Well, no, he had the power of the Holy Spirit working through him for that particular moment in time, right? But Paul didn't just have the ability to do what he want when he wanted to. He was fully dependent on the Spirit of God to move in and through him. See, had Paul had the ability to just perform miracles at will, you wouldn't have a passage like 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, where Paul in his own life was experiencing a problem that he had asked God on three different occasions to take away. I just want to read you this. He says, to keep me from becoming proud, this is Paul speaking, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away, and each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. And so he, Paul goes on to say, so I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so the, that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, I am strong. See, if, if Paul had the ability to just keep at will, to, to cast out demons at will with, without the power of God, if it was just something that he had special, he would have done it to himself clearly. And yet he asked God three different times and God says, no, you don't need a miracle. All you need right now is my grace because I'm teaching you through this trial and through this circumstance. And so we, we need to keep that in, in, in mind, but my point is in bringing that up is there is clearly a balance in Scripture when it comes to the move of God between the sovereign will of God but also the faith of mankind. Although it's true that God allows suffering and difficulties and trials of many sorts to accomplish His purposes, I personally believe that God will still move in big ways if our hearts and our minds are where they need to be. Because even though God has the power to do what He wants, and I know this is a strong statement, but I truly believe that we can hinder what God desires to do for a number of reasons. Whether it be sin, whether it be a lack of faith, a lack of belief in Him. Now, I want to start with kind of Paul's side of this for a moment. Just, just work through this, right? If, if we're not in tuned with God's voice, we may not be able to discern a situation like this, even if God placed it right in front of us. And I couldn't help just asking myself this week that I was reading this, how many opportunities have I missed to see God move just because I wasn't in tuned with the Holy Spirit at the time? And so I was asking myself, like, do we really know the voice of God? Are we sensitive to the voice of God? Because honestly, most times He doesn't speak loudly. Most of the time, it's, it's a whisper. 
that we have to have our spirit quieted enough to be in tune with him to hear and see what he is doing. And another thing is, even if we had that opportunity, it, I mean, put, put yourself in Paul's shoes. If there was a paralyzed person here and, and, and you, you felt the Spirit of God say, that person's ready for a miracle, I asked myself, w- would I have the boldness to say, stand up and walk? Because there's like potential that I would look like a fool. I mean, are you following? And so, like, there's, there's so much faith involved in this. You know, many times I think the reasons that we, we don't see these things today is because Christians struggle with, with those two things. Many times because of sin or distraction or busyness or just a simple lack of effort, many Christians don't recognize when God is speaking. There's too much noise in our lives. They've never learned to hear his voice or understand how he speaks to their hearts. And on the other side of it, I think to an extent... I'm guilty of it too. There's this struggle with, with, with doubt, not just believing that God has done things in the distant past, but that believing that God still has the power to do those things and does do those, th- those things in the present and, and that he, he may want to use me to accomplish that. That takes faith. But then there's kind of the other side of this miracle, which was the man that was healed. Again, this man heard Paul's message and something inside of him was just, just, just sparked, and, and Paul saw that in him. Again, was it just the power of, of, of God that gave him this faith? Was it hearing about the compassion of God that gave him this, this faith, the mercy? I, I don't know. But whatever it was, something triggered inside of him, and then Paul saw, God told him, that man's ready for a miracle. Now, I asked this question a moment ago, like, do we really believe that, that God can still do miracles today? I, I mean, I'll tell you, for me, I, I absolutely believe that's true. And I would be a fool not to believe that's true because I personally know people that have had miracles done to them. People that have been healed, like, clearly. I'm related to some of them. Here's stories on the mission field all over the place of just these incredible, miraculous things that, that God is doing. So, I mean, it's, to me, it's not really like a question as if God has the ability to do this. But then I asked the question, like, do we have the faith to believe that, 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 that not only God can do a miracle like that, but, but if we were the one that needed it, do we really believe that God would? For many, this is a struggle. For me, this is a struggle. Like, many don't have a problem believing that God can do a miracle in somebody else's life, but they have a problem that he may do it for them. Certainly sometimes I think people may doubt in God's ability, but I think more often the problem is, is doubting their worthiness. You ever have that problem? Thinking, why would God even want to do this for me? I'm not worthy of this blessing. I'm not worthy of this miracle in my life, this, this struggle, believing that, that, God, why would you look past my flaws? I have so many sins, so many issues in my life. How could I even expect you to do this, some incredible kindness like this to me? And see, what this comes down to is how do we believe God views us? Have you ever thought through that? Thinking to yourself, God, how do you see me? What, what do you see me as? How do you view me from your heavenly throne? Like, as you think about that, do you think that, boy, when God looks down at me, he sees 
somebody he just loves? Do you think that God looks down at you and, and you think like, when God looks at me, he, he finds pleasure in me. He, he looks down on me with a smile, with genuine uh, affection. He, he, he looks down on me with kindness. He, he really wants to meet these needs in my life. He sees me as worthy. Does anybody struggle with that besides me? Now, here, here's the kind of the adverse side of that. Or do you think instead, when God's on his throne and he's looking down at your life, you think to yourself, is God just like frustrated with me or irritated with me? Does he look down at me and all of my issues with disgust? That's a real thing. I know it's a real thing because I experience it. This issue of believing that I'm worthy. See, what we believe about God affects way more than we realize because I'm, like, I'm convinced that if we have a wrong view of how God sees us and feels about us, it will greatly hinder our faith and as a result can greatly hinder what it is that God wants to accomplish through us. So we need to remind ourselves that God does not see us in the same light that we often see ourselves. I don't think that man that was sitting there, that crippled man in front of Paul, was, was thinking how bad of a sinner he was and how unworthy he was and everything else. No, he, he, he heard something about this mercy and compassion and power of God, and he says, God can do that for me. Now, to an extent, I would agree that none of us are technically worthy. I mean, we're all equally a bunch of mess-ups in our own way. But we need to understand, we need to understand this. You need to just let this, let this settle in your soul. Our worth does not come from what we do. Our worth comes from Christ. It comes from Jesus. One of the greatest beauties of our salvation through Jesus is that when we respond to the gospel and get saved, the Bible tells us that we are made worthy through Christ. We're, we're given his righteousness, his perfection, his perfect life that he lived is transferred to us. God no longer sees us as an object of wrath or an outcast, but yet he, he sees us as his own. He sees us as his very child and as children of God. We're more precious to him than we could ever possibly understand. Are we going to mess up? Sure. Are we still going to have flaws? Absolutely. But the thing of it is is God no longer looks at us through the lens of sin. He looks at us through the lens of the perfect righteousness of Christ. And he views us as he sees Jesus. Perfect, holy, righteous. And friends, it would be good for us to accept that. Because that's the hardest part. I mean, I stand up here and preach this stuff, and I'll be honest with you, I'm the first one to admit, I struggle accepting that truth. Because I have this, like, this, this roaming doubt in my mind, this self-condemnation that says, how could God possibly look at you as worthy? How could he possibly look at you as perfect when I know how much junk is in my life? It's a struggle. It's, a, it's one thing to know it here. It's another thing to accept it here. But it would do us great. It would be do us good to accept it because our faith, and to a large extent, seeing the power of God on display, I really believe hinges on how much we understand how God sees us. 
It's, it's really hard to be in tune with God and to accept him doing something big in our life and have that faith if we believe he looks down on us as unworthy with disgust. Now, we're going to jump back into verse 11 here and kind of shift just a little bit. Reading verses 11 through 17. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their local dialect, These men are gods in human form. They decided that Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus and that Paul was Hermes since he was the chief speaker. Now the temple of Zeus was located just outside the town, and so the priest of the temple and the crowd brought bulls and wreaths of flowers to the town gates, and they prepared to offer sacrifices to the apostles. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard what was happening, they tore their clothing in dismay and ran out among the people shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We're merely human beings just like you. We have come to bring you the good news that you should turn from these worthless things and turn to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. In the past, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, but he never left them without evidence of himself and his goodness. For instance, he sends you rain and good crops and gives you food and joyful hearts. So this crippled man gets healed. Uh, The people of the town have this crazy notion that, that Paul and Barnabas really aren't human, but they're actually two of the Greek gods who have come down in human form to test them. You'll see that here in just a second. And, and so because they believe that this is not Paul and Barnabas, but, but Zeus and Hermes, they, they decide they're going to make sacrifices to them. Now, why would they do that? And, and why would they think that Barnabas was Zeus and, and Paul was Hermes. Now, well, well, kind of in the, in the Greek mind of Greek mythology back then, um, Zeus was the head god, and you had the other gods that did a lot of his bidding for him, and, and Hermes was, was essentially known as the, the herald of the gods or the spokesperson of the gods. So because Barnabas was kind of in the background and Paul was the one talking, they're like, it's got to be Zeus and Barnabas. I mean, only the gods could do a miracle like this, clearly. So they were going to offer sacrifices. Why sacrifices? Well, this goes back to a, a legend that the people in Lystra had about a time in the past where they believed that, that Zeus and Hermes actually came disguised as mortals to their town, and nobody gave them hospitality except for one old couple. And so in their anger, the gods wiped the entire population out with the flood except for that old couple and they didn't want to have that happen again and so in in their minds that's what they thought what was going on here they they thought they were going to be the next victims of the angry gods you know just another quick point that kind of relates back to my last one as far as our view of God if we have a view of God that he is like some angry God ready to strike us down all the time Can I tell you something? You will never experience the relationship with him that he desires to have with you. We should not view him as some angry God with a lightning bolt. Isn't it amazing how Zeus is the God with the lightning bolt, and yet we still view our God that way sometimes in relation to us? Let's not do that. Anyways, Paul and Barnabas' response here is just completely fitting. Verse 11, they they didn't really understand what was going on. Verse 11 said they were speaking in their own dialect, but when they finally understood what these people were about to do, it says that they they ripped their clothes, which was a very Jewish thing to do, just show it was like a sign of like just horror and and disgust, right? And so the kind of of response is, is fitting because 
God's worthy of worship. God's worthy of sacrifice. They knew they were not. And I just can't help but wonder if that situation back from Acts chapter 12 came to mind. Remember when Herod Agrippa was up there and the people were, were it's not the voice of a man, of a voice of a God. And he was just like, oh, keep speaking. Well, what happened to that guy? God inflicted him with worms and ate him from the inside out and he died. And I can't help but think just a little bit. That kind of went through Paul and Barnabas' mind. I don't want to be that guy. So, nope, only God's worthy of worship, right? But, they, but they really what they saw this was a great insult to the true God of heaven. How could they possibly steal the glory of God? You know, Isaiah 42 and verse 8 says, God speaking here, he says, I am the Lord, that's my name, and my glory I will not give to another. And so Paul, Barnabas, they dared not receive this praise from the people. They knew only God was worthy of that. And I'm just saying, just as a, as a note in our own lives, God gives us gifts, he gives us abilities, he gives us talents, and many times people praise us for those things. Let's never forget where those gifts and talents and abilities come from. Let's always point our finger to the one who gives it. Well, instead of receiving their worship, verse 15 says they, they tried their best, to set, their best to set the record straight for these people. And they're just like, look, folks, we're, we're not gods. We're, we're just merely human beings just like you. However, we are messengers for the one true God. It was kind of the, the idea of what was going on here, right? And, and they're like, what, we, we have come to bring you good news. The good news is this, that these, these fake gods that you're worshiping, they're not real. They're just fake. Turn from these worthless things and turn to the living God, the true creator of all things, the creator of heaven and the earth and the seas and, and everything that was in them. And so they give them this message, which was a message that would have been completely countercultural to what they were expecting. And then you look at what Paul says in, in verse 16 and 17, and it's also interesting. He says, in the past, God permitted all the nations to go their own ways, but he left them without evidence of himself. Um, and, and, and his goodness, for instance, he sends you rain and crops and all these things and gives you food and, and joyful hearts. Anyways, I, what I find really interesting about the way that, that Paul approaches this is that it's so different than what he had done in the other towns. See, this is why I believe I don't believe there was a synagogue here because he was speaking to these real, true Greek people and he met them right where they were at. See, in the, in the Jewish worldview, it made sense to go back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and their forefathers, but these people didn't know Jacob from Adam. And so Paul met them where they were at and, and met them right at their particular worldview, right at their belief system. These people didn't know Jesus. They didn't know the God of heaven. All they'd ever known were these false gods of their ancestors. So that's exactly where Paul started, and I love the way he approached it. He, he told them that it was the Jewish God of heaven that created the world and everything in it, not some crazy story that they had come to believe. Now, I don't have time to read you the whole creation account from the Greek mythology side of it, but I will tell you, Google it. It's really interesting, and it's crazy. Like, God's eating their baby gods and this and that and, and titans and it's, 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 it's weird, right? But so Paul meets them where they're at. He's like, that, that story that you come to believe, not true? Fake news? 
Nope, it, it comes from the true God, the one living God. And Paul also painted a different picture of this God than they were used to. See, the Greeks of the day lived to appease the gods so they wouldn't become angry with them. They believed that everything in their life, from the health of their crops and animals to the safety on the seas, depended fully on them making sure that they kept the gods happy with them. But look how Paul shared, showed them a different truth here. He's like, he painted this picture of the true God as this benevolent king who has revealed himself by blessing their nation, even spite of the fact that they didn't believe in him. They're like, look, God made the heavens and the earth. You've experienced his blessing. You have joy in your heart. You have all this, this plenty. And it's not because you've appeased him. It's not because you've served him. It's simply out of his love and out of his grace that he wanted to make sure that people understood that there was a God in heaven that did all this. Now, you think about that, verse 16, it's like, in the past, he, he permitted all the nations to go their own way. And yet he still did these things. Paul's like, look, God's not a God that needs to be appeased. That's not the God that we serve. What you're used to is not reality. Now, most theologians would refer to this as what's called common grace. And this term is kind of um, based on, in large part, Matthew 5 and verse 45, where, where Jesus speaks here and he says, God gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. The idea is that the whole world sees God's hand of blessing in many ways, whether they recognize it or not. You know, I think it's in Psalm 14, 1 that says, only a fool says in their heart that there is no God. You can't look around you and say, well, that just happened by happenstance. It must have been a big bang where a bunch of slime all got together over billions and billions and billions and billions of years, and all of a sudden something came out, and next thing you know, wham, bam, we're here. No, that's foolish talk. You can't look out at what we see and, and say it happened by accident. No, there's design. There's beauty. There's order. You know, Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display His craftsmanship. In Romans 1.20, Paul wrote this. He says, Ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky, and through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature, so that they have no excuse for not knowing God. And so Paul's point was, was basically this. He's like, look, I know what you have believed in the past, but I want you to know the truth, that everything you know and see came from the one true God, the God of Israel, the God of Isaac and Jacob and Abraham, my God, your God, the, the same God we worship today. That's where he met them, was right there. He meets them in their worldview. As we think about this today in, in our own kind of context, and we think about our job of sharing the message of Jesus, you know, in so many ways, nothing's really changed. We're still today meeting people right where they're at. People today all have a worldview of some sort. When I say that, I mean, it's kind of like this. When I say worldview, it means like the lens by which a person views reality. And our 
job as Christians, regardless of how a person views reality, is to, is to show them the true God of the Bible and to help them understand that that God in heaven wants a relationship with them. And so basically the mission of the gospel hasn't changed in 2,000 years. We're still dealing with the same message, the same problems really all around us. Because the, the truth is, when you think about people, I don't, care, I don't care who it is or what country they're from or what religious background they come from or whether they even believe in God, there's, there's three basic questions that every single person alive has asked themselves at one point or another. How did I get here? Where am I going after I'm gone from here? And what in the world is the purpose of my existence? See, those are three questions that really everybody in their own minds goes through and has to, has to answer. And what's, what's really interesting is how, that, how did I get here and where I'm going after I'm dead and gone really defines that last one of what's my purpose. And really you see that no matter what worldview people have. For instance, like the atheist. Atheists, meaning they don't believe in any God, they, they would generally believe that everything that we see came apart, came part of some evolutionary origin. Some of the tin hat crazies think that aliens did it. Um, that's kind of a new thing that's out there. Um, I, would, I would disagree. Most of them believe when they die, they're just going to cease to exist. And so if you have a worldview that everything happened by accident, and when I die, that's it. Wouldn't it make sense you would just live every day to its fullest? That you would just pursue happiness and whatever fulfills you and really you're the main focus of your life? Makes sense if that's your worldview. But then you have like the religious. And when I say religious, I'm going to give this caveat. When I say religious, I'm speaking of people who do not have a true relationship with Jesus Christ as Savior. And, and now I will say in this religious group, some people may have a belief in Jesus of some sort, but I'm talking, when I say religion, I'm talking about this, this, this idea of, um, well, well, I'll get to in a moment, this, this idea that people, no matter what religion they're in, whether it's, you know, Hindu or some African tribal religion or Islam or, or whatever, they, they all have a common view that, Creation came from some deity, and, and they, they all believe that they're going to end up somewhere, whether it's reincarnated somehow or in some other existence, and, and, and most all of those religions would agree that how they get their preferred existence after this life depends on what they do in this life, if they can kind of tip that scale in their favor so that whoever that God is they're trying to serve will accept them and give them that preferred reality when they get there. Does that make sense? I mean, I don't care what religion it is, that's pretty much what we, we see all around us. It's the idea that they have to appease whatever God that is so that God will accept them and give them their preferred reality. And, and in fact, because that's so common in the world, this has even crept into the true church. To where we even have a struggle with believing that I have to perform before God will truly accept me. I have to perform and appease Him so He doesn't smite me. Right? There's this mindset can creep into our lives as well, but but what's the truth? If, I mean, what we see today is what exactly the same thing Paul saw in his day. 
I mean, people aren't, generally speaking, worshiping Zeus and Hermes and the Greek gods, but they worship all kinds of other false gods. Same difference. Just false gods by different names. So what is the truth? Is there one truth? You know, there's this common belief that's creeping into the church today, even that it doesn't really matter what people call God, because God's God. There's got to just be only one. So whether you call him by the God of Israel or Allah or the little chubby guy in, in Japan, whatever that is, Buddha, in the end, it's all God. So what's the matter? As long as you're moral, that mindset has creeped into even the Christian church. But what does the Bible say about these things? What does the Bible say about those questions of how we got here? I'm not going to go into full detail for the sake of time, but read the book of Genesis. It's clear. It didn't take millions and millions and millions of years. It took six days. You could have did it in one if you wanted to, but he did it in six with the seventh day of rest because it set the order of our entire lives, the seven-day work week and the need for worship and rest and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But anyways, but, but, but the point of it, you, you go through the creation store and you create all these different things, but then you get to the pinnacle of creation, and what is it? It's not the animals. It's not the puppies. What is it? It's It's humanity. It's, it's that first man and first woman. And then like you, you see this picture of, of God wanting an intimate relationship with them because everything else, he just speaks them into existence. And yet Adam, the first man, he, he, he forms him with his hands from the dust. And, and then it's like you get this picture of him bending down off his throne and it says that he, that he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. Like that, that closeness, that intimacy. You see in this relationship with them in, in the beginning where, where Adam and Eve are experiencing this goodness of God and, and this perfection and, and sinlessness and no death, no strife, no all these different things. That's what God wants. That's what He's wanted from the beginning. So our purpose from the beginning, our purpose from the beginning was, was to experience God. To, to experience His goodness, to walk with Him, to be in relationship with Him. That's what God created us for. That's our purpose in life. But you see, here's where the gospel comes in because the Bible tells us that sin disrupted this thing. Sin comes in and the result was that this relationship that God created us for was, was broken and then we, we entered into this massive problem that we couldn't repair on our own. How could sinful men ever get back into the good graces of God once again? The problem was there was no way to do it. No matter how much good God, man did, there was no way to tip the scale back in our favor. We were in this completely, absolute, hopeless situation so that on Judgment Day, we were going to face the wrath of God had not God stepped in. But I praise God that He did. And that's the good news of the Gospels, friends. The good news of the gospel is he didn't leave us hopeless. He didn't leave us helpless. He didn't leave us in that, that state of, of sinlessness where we couldn't get out of it. No, he sent Jesus to fix the problem for us. And the greatest act of kindness in all of eternity, instead of leaving us in that situation, what did he do? He sent Jesus to come to this world to live the life that we couldn't. He, he sent him to this world for the purpose to send his son to be a martyr, to go to a cross, to die to carry our guilt, to carry our shame, to take our punishment for us, to take His wrath upon Himself so that we didn't have to experience it. Friends, that's the good news of the Gospel. And to top it all off, Jesus rose from the dead, showing us what our eternal reality could be someday if we would choose to trust in Him as a Savior and Lord. 
Now, you know, you would think that like that incredible gift. I mean, you think about what Jesus did, right? He, he died. The God of heaven comes down and dies and suffers for us and, and offers this incredible salvation that we can be forgiven, have our sins wiped clean. I mean, for crying out loud, we get heaven, streets of gold, a mansion, no sin, no pain, no nothing. Boy, what's it going to take to attain that? How many miles around the earth are we going to have to run? How many lives are we going to have to affect? How much money are we going to have to give? How much penance are we going to have to do to, to gain God's favor and somehow attain what he has to offer? You know what the Bible says? Simply. It just says, trust in what Jesus did and make him savior of your life. That's it. Just acknowledge you've sinned. Just agree with God. I'm a sinner. I can't get to heaven on my own. But I believe what Jesus did is good enough. So Jesus, I need you. Come into my life. Be my Savior. Forgive me. Help me to live for you. That's it. That's all it took for us to get saved. To simply in faith trust in all the work that Jesus did. And what are the results of that? Well, we're brought into a relationship with God. We're given complete forgiveness, made completely holy. God walks with us and, and offers His guidance through all life's wandering roads. He provides us peace and comfort, strength, provision, protection, showers us with innumerable blessings throughout our lives, and that's just the beginning. Then we die, but then we live. <laughs> we, we, we pass from this life into a far, far greater existence. You see, when it comes to what God has shown us in Scripture, unlike what all other religion teaches, salvation is not dependent on us tipping the scales in our favor. Salvation doesn't have to be earned, nor is our relationship with God about having to, to, to continually appease Him so that He doesn't strike us down. No. You know what our salvation is about? It's about experiencing the goodness of God. It's about being in a relationship with Him and walking with Him, which then defines our purpose in life. If we know that He created us for a relationship with Him, and we know we're going to be in an eternal relationship with Him forever, what does that define our purpose as? It means, to, it means that our purpose in life is to walk in a relationship with Him as closely as we can right now living for Him, getting in His Word, learning what it means to walk with Him and serve Him and to do His work, to do His will. Friends, that's the purpose of our lives as Christians, to simply walk with Jesus, to live according to His Word, and to affect as many people's lives as we can. Friends, we serve a God that loves us with an everlasting love. We serve a God that gave up everything to bring us back to Himself. Our God is faithful. That's the God that we serve. And as Christians, we need to believe it and not allow ourselves to get sucked into believing something different. Now, as I close out these last few verses, you know, you would think that with that story that I just shared with you, that everybody and their brother would jump on the salvation boat, wouldn't you? Like, that's too good to be true. If, if all of that's available, why not? Well, you know what the problem is? So many don't. So many don't. So many still refuse. And that's 
really what we see here in, in the last few verses, uh, verses 18 through 20. But even with these words, Paul and Barnabas could scarcely restrain the people from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowds to their side. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of town, thinking he was dead. But as the believers gathered around him, he got up and went back into town. The next day, he left with Barnabas for Derby. Now, we talked last week about how when, when people reject Christ, when they, re, when, they, when they reject the message of salvation, a few things take place, like their, their hearts become hardened. They, they, they really give themselves over to the control of Satan to do Satan's bidding, and, and that's exactly what we see here in these last few verses. These people that had heard this incredible message of life back in Iconium and, and, and Antioch, the, they, they not only rejected it, it wasn't good enough to chase them out of their towns, but they chased Paul and Barnabas all the way to Lystra and stirred up a mob of people, robbing them of their opportunity to be saved, and tried to stone Paul and murder him and kill him. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. But the good thing is it didn't work. I mean, sure, he was knocked a little silly, but uh, as the people gathered around him, I mean, you know, another true miracle happened. He survived. Stoning wasn't something you survived. I mean, they would most times bury you up to your waist and just start stuck and chucking stones at your head till you were dead, you know. And, and yet, you know, he lived. Now, you would think that after that, he'd be like, run away. Nope. What does he do? He walks right back into the city amongst the people who had just tried to murder him. I'm like, I mean, was he like this, was he a glutton for punishment? Was he crazy? No. He was just a man who knew his purpose in life. He was a man that, that knew the love of God that we just talked about. He was a man that, that saw everything that God had done for him. He knew his purpose was to serve the Lord and to proclaim this message. And even at the risk of his own life, he didn't care because God was worthy enough for him to risk his life to proclaim the message that had saved him. Can I tell you something? Paul had a right view of God. Had not Paul understood the love of God that, that, that we talked about tonight, he, he, he wouldn't have remained as faithful as he was. Friends, our, our view of God, having a right view of God is so important. As is having a right view of how he views us through the lens of the gospel. Paul and Barnabas were men that understood this correctly, and it was why they lived out their lives with the incredible faith and commitment to God that they did. Friends, serving God in this life is the greatest privilege we could ever possibly have. And when a person finally can grasp that, when they can not just know these truths that we talked about, about tonight intellectually, but, but internalize them in their heart and accept the fact that they are dearly loved by the Heavenly Father that's sitting on His throne right now. It will change everything. It will change everything. And I pray that you guys can accept that for yourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word tonight. So much, God, for these truths that we talked about tonight. God, as I said earlier, I'd be the first to admit that I struggle with it. I struggle with accepting these things for myself, Lord. And I pray for myself as I do each one in here that, Lord, you would give us the ability to do that. To, to, to understand, as Paul prayed in Ephesians, to, to understand how, how deep 
how, how wide, how long, how high your love is for us, Lord. Will you help us to accept that, to experience that, to, to truly enter into an intimate relationship with you each and every day. And as we good, do, God, help us to experience your goodness. And through that, Lord, let us show the love you show us to the people around us. God, that's where our lives become powerful. God, use us for your glory. Help us, God, to live for you. Help us to make an impact in this world. And Heavenly Father, I just pray if there's anybody in this place tonight, anybody listening to this service tonight that has never made the decision to follow Christ, Lord, I've already shared the gospel and made it clear. I just pray they would respond. That they would just come to you in prayer and, and choose to make Jesus their Savior. Heavenly Father, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. In the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.